This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 46. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Travis Weador from Weador Capital. I've been following Travis's blog for some time called Egregiously Cheap and reached out to him to see if he'd like to share his thoughts. The main point I wanted to talk about was this idea of CEO alignment with shareholders, why this is important to him, and why he, as it says on his website, and I quote, only looks at companies where the CEO owns a lot of stock, end quote. The goal for this episode is to learn why Travis pays attention to CEO and C-suite pay and stock ownership, and why that is part of his investment criteria. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 46 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Travis Weador, but first, a word from our sponsor. A comprehensive streaming of market data, research, and portfolio management application for you. QuoteStream is a real-time streaming quotes and research system designed for the day trader, retail investor, institutional investor, both new and old. QuoteStream offers low-latency, tick-by-tick data, advanced charting, comprehensive technical analysis, news, and research. With no software to install and no servers to maintain, QuoteStream is the ideal solution for you. Go to stocknewsnow.com and start your free seven-day trial. Click the quote stream banner in the header or real-time quotes in the nav bar to get started building and managing your investments. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I have Travis Weador from Weador Capital on the program. Travis, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. So to start off here, what is your background and how did you get started investing in microcap stocks? Yeah, my, uh, my investing journey began when I was younger. I played poker full time for uh, roughly two and a half years. Um, and there's a lot of poker players that also invest on the side. So kind of got into it. There's a lot of similarities between poker and investing. And I really enjoyed it, but it was you know, very much a hobby for several years. And then a few years after, um, I, I guess I really enjoying it, decided to start getting serious about it. And kind of my first introduction to microcaps was through the Ben Graham net nets. That was when I first started to get serious about investing. I discovered those and that was back in maybe 2010 or something where there were actually some decent quality Ben Graham net nets and um, I'm not really doing those anymore, but have kind of always stuck with the smaller, uh, small caps and microcaps or that's always been what I've enjoyed the most. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of searching for hidden gems and you know turning over as many rocks as possible. And there's a lot more scuttlebutt 
I feel like there's a lot more scuttlebutt required in small and micro caps, which I, I mean, that's the most fun part of investing for me is you know, kind of doing obscure research and finding these little companies and unique things about them. And I'd say the final thing is I actually have access to CEOs and CFOs, which if I'm investing in like Bank of America, I would never have that access. And you know, the smallest companies help. There've been some times where I just call up their corporate office and ask to talk to management. And um, sometimes you can get them in the call on the phone that easily. So that's kind of cool. And you know, just something a lot of us small investors don't really have access to normally. So uh, just to your background, okay, so you're playing poker for two and a half years. Like what, what, what did you see or what was the influence that got you even just started in investing? I mean, did you just happen to come across a book? Was it happenstance? You know what, was one of your poker buddies also uh, an investor? I mean, what what was it? Um, I, there are quite a few uh, like hedge fund managers that started from poker. It's pretty crazy, actually. So I had heard about some and read about it. Um, didn't have any direct friends, but you know, I just had some extra money from poker and was like, you know, it's earning one percent or whatever in my bank account. Might as well try and do something with it and. You know, started screwing around in the stock market on the side and, you know, kind of got lucky from the beginning and I guess it hooked me. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you're definitely not the first person, especially in our age, bracket, Because I think you're, what, you're 20-something years old too? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah tw 29. There you go. I'm 28. So, you know, the, I think uh, I've met quite a few people in our space that are, you know, they got their start in, in, uh, in poker and, and more, more mind-type games. And uh, yeah. and made that transition, so it's yeah, it's, it's pretty absolutely. interesting. And we'll def and yeah. actually we're we're gonna get more into it uh, a little bit later in this interview. So, uh, so my next question then is you know following following that you know again just getting right into it. You know what what are your criteria for a potential new investment? You know what what are you looking for? Well, one of the first things I look for is if a CEO is aligned with me. I I think it's kind of crazy to invest in a company where the CEO's, the person who's in charge of the company has different incentives than I do. So that's I mean, one of the first things I look at is a proxy statement to see how much stock the CEO owns. And if he's a founder, I really, really prefer founder-led companies. Um, beyond that, you know, I love companies that have a really long uh, runway for growth that have like benefiting from very large industry tailwinds industries that are just going to grow for the next you know, 5, 10, or 20 years. It's, you know, if, if you're a decent company in an industry that's seeing huge industry tailwinds like that, it's kind of hard you know, not to you know, kind of be taken along with those industry tailwinds. I don't like debt. Um, of the nine companies I own, I, I looked at before we did this podcast, five of them have zero debt. Uh, the rest have small amounts of debt. I bet the debt to equity ratio of my entire portfolio is like 0.1 or something. Uh, so generally avoid debt. When it comes to valuation, I, I don't focus on any ratios really. I mean, if you ask me what the price to book of any company I own, I probably wouldn't know one of them. <laughs> if you ask me the PE ratio of any of the companies I own, I probably don't know any of them. Um, it, it was kind of a aha moment for me some years ago in my investing career when I realized that 
which is it's kind of obvious, but um, like the value of a company is entirely its future cash flows. Like it really doesn't matter what the trailing 12 month price to book ratio or PE ratio or whatever is. I mean, it's it's possible for a company selling for 100x to be cheap, and as Amazon has been for you know many years, and it's possible for a company selling for 8x to be very expensive. Hmm. So um, yeah, I don't. You know, my, my valuations are completely dependent on the future and trying to figure out you know, what those future cash flows are going to be. And that's kind of going back. I love when there's there's a really long runway for growth. And um, yeah, really quickly, just just to follow up on your on your previous question, um, what I wanted to know is what what do you look for when you putting together your models and and you are putting together your valuations for these businesses? You know, as, as you said, you know, sometimes a company trading 100x might be cheap, or 8x it might be expensive. So, you know, what what are you looking for? How do, how do you put it all together? Well, the main thing I'm looking for is a company that, first of all, is going to be around in 10 or 20 years. That's you know, is not going to be bankrupt, or the industry is not going to be eliminated. Um, and then just trying to figure out how I think that industry will evolve. Um, you know, over the next 10 years, and then if this company will be able to benefit, you know, assuming the industry is going to grow, I, I would think that the best investors of all time, you know, people like Warren Buffett and all the others who have gotten long-term, um, you know, great track records, I really think it comes down to they're better at predicting the future than others are, because I mean that's really a, a company's value is completely dependent on where it's going in the future doesn't really matter what it did in the trailing 12 months. I mean, obviously that affects it, but it's not, that's not where the value comes from. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask, you know, I had a, a written question um, that, but what I really want to ask you is, and it kind of relates to what you just said is, and it comes to when you're going about finding potential new microcap investments. And would you say that you kind of take a top down approach? Like, You'll, you'll, you'll look at the industry first to see if it's an industry that actually has runway and then see what companies are within that. Or are you more of like, a, you know, I'm going to look at the companies first and, oh, yeah, no, it's in those industries that I'm looking for. You know, how, how do you go about doing that? Uh, I mean, vast majority is bottom up. There are some, you know, sometimes I'll read about an industry or, you know, hear about something that I'll like, oh, that piques my interest. But in general, I'm looking through a lot of companies and, you know, within two minutes, I you know, have a decent idea of what their business is. And you know, most companies will just immediately be next just because I don't like the business. I don't like the industry. And um, so definitely more of a bottom up approach. So what I mean, just I'm just curious, what in, what industries do you like right now that you find interesting? Well, in terms of a. Uh, Well, as, as I was saying earlier, I, I like industries that have really big tailwinds behind them that are going to keep growing. And, you know, I'll, one company, I don't, I don't own it right now, but I've spent a lot of time on it recently. So it's at the forefront of my mind is True Panion, and they do uh, pet health insurance. And um, that's the it's interesting because uh, the U.S. is penetration rate for pet health insurance is like 1%. Historically, pet health insurance has been kind of crappy in the United States, whereas in more developed 
um, or in other first world countries, the penetration rate is anywhere from like five to 50 or 60 percent. So there's this huge um, growth, you know, before they get anywhere close to these other countries. And, you know, I, I like that industry, but, you know, I, I don't have much. I only own nine companies. I don't think I really have any industry like focus, if you will. It's not like, you know, I love housing right now and I have three or four companies in housing. It's, you know, kind of going back to that bottom up approach. I've found nine companies that don't really do anything similar, but I like kind of their industry separately. Gotcha. So you've actually touched on my next question a little bit, but I figured we'll pull it all together. You know, how do you go about conducting your qualitative due diligence? You know, once you find a company based on your on your metrics, you know, what, what do you do from there? Well, the uh, in terms of management, uh, you know, quality, you know, seeing if this is a management team that I think is a high quality team, it's mostly conference calls. I, I think conference calls are one of the best, you know, easy sources of um, in, or of company research and management research. So I generally will read the past two or three years of conference calls. So I'll go back to like Q1 of 2014 and read them all in order. And a lot of what I'm looking for in those conference calls is the CEO and the CFO and, you know, kind of what kind of impression I get of them. And eventually I'll talk to them. Um, and generally I don't uh, talk to all managers, but in general, I like to. Um, in terms of like company and industry qualitative due diligence, you know, certainly look at competitors, suppliers, customers. You know, trying to look at the, trying to just understand this. As, assuming it's a new industry that I'm not super familiar with, just trying to understand the industry. If there are public competitors, you know, obviously look at them, look at their conference calls and everything. I found a lot of micro caps or at least the high quality micro caps that I really like, they're generally kind of doing something unique. And a lot of times they're the only public company in their space doing what they're doing. So there's, you know, it's, a lot of times it's hard to get great information about their competitors. You know, you can go to their competitors' websites and stuff, but they're private companies. Um, industry trade journals can be a great one. It's kind of hit or miss, but some industries have really good ones where you can get really great industry information and, um, for, you know, online forums have honestly been great at times. Um, there's a company I used to own, Expel Technologies, that I don't own them anymore, but they do a, a plastic film or a paint protection film for cars. So if you own like a $200,000 Ferrari, you can spend $2,000 to have it wrapped in this film that protects the paint and protects it from sun damage or rot chips. So I spent a ton of time going to like Ferrari car forums and Lamborghini forums and Tesla forums and you know all these different places where customers were talking about paint films and you know, got a lot of great knowledge about it on there. And then you know other uh, online websites can be pretty hit or miss like LinkedIn, Yelp, Glassdoor. Um, you know I own a restaurant chain that so I spent a lot of time going through all their every one of their locations on Yelp and seeing what the reviews were like and kind of look at how they've evolved over time. Are the reviews getting better? Are they getting worse? Um, LinkedIn can be great for finding, I found a great resource is past employees, which um, if you can talk to past employees, can be really valuable because you know most employees, current employees of a public company 
are well aware they're a public company. They know they're not allowed to, you know, say much of anything <laughs> to outsiders. But if you if you find some past employees, you know, they generally don't care. Uh, realize that they're probably going to skew negative. So, you know, take some things they say with a grain of salt. But, I mean, there have been times where I go on LinkedIn and you can search by uh, past employers. So I'll look, you know, whatever company I'm researching, look for past employees and see where they're currently working. And I'll just call up that company and ask for, you know, John Smith. And <laughs> uh, sometimes it works. You know, sometimes you can find these past employees. Sometimes you can or... Um, but I've, I've found they can be very valuable. That's a funny one. That's actually a first on the podcast anybody said. <laughs> <laughs> they go to past employees. I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're, yeah. uh, there's going to give, be, give much more honest feedback about, you know, company culture and, you know, what the CEO is actually like and that type of stuff. And again, they definitely skew negative because some of them have been fired or, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, I've uh, I found it to be very valuable. I was gonna say, I think uh, there there's gonna be a lot of traffic on LinkedIn to past employers right now. Um, uh, I hope <laughs> I don't piss off some <laughs> companies getting the surges of investors calling they're, them. They're gonna put out a press release, be like, to all those investors who are calling past employees, <laughs> please, for the love of God, do not anymore. Please stop. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes uh, you know people just say, you know, I I have no interest in talking to you or they'll assume I'm trying to like sell them something or something like that. But there have been, you know, other times where people are like, Oh yeah, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Cool. So on, on your website and also as you've alluded to a little bit already in the, in this interview, you said, and I quote, I only look at companies where the CEO owns a lot of stock end quote. So why, why do you only look at, at that? What's, what's so interesting about that? Sorry, not, you don't only just look at that, but why, why do you also look at that? <laughs> well, I pretty much only look at that. First of all, the only exception there is when uh, maybe like, an, like a hedge fund manager won a proxy contest and he's now on the board and he's like clearly in control of the company or uh, one of the companies I own, there's a private equity firm um, that took the company public and, you know, they clearly control the company. Um, but I mean, basically I'm looking for whoever's in control, they are incentivized by the stock price, um, which the vast majority of the time it's the CEO. But it, it really comes down to, you know, just basic human incentives. Reading uh, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac was a huge influence on me years ago and I kind of became obsessed for a period of time of reading about like reading psychology books and books about like cognitive biases and incentives and all that stuff and once I was reading and learning about a lot of that stuff first of all I recognized a lot of the stuff in myself and I realized like and then you start to pay attention to other people and just like wow these incentives are just like so powerful and what it really comes down to is human beings are selfish I mean, human beings, our two basic instincts are to procreate and then our own survival and kind of... And, and, self kind of, and self-interest isn't necessarily a bad thing either. No, no, it's, no, there's a whole lot of benefits to that. I mean, that's kind of what capitalism is based on, is the people, hey, being, people the, being selfish. You know what, my, my, I just started business school three weeks ago and I'm going to start throwing out phrases already. So uh, <laughs> the rational actor paradigm, bang. There it is, yeah. paying off already. 
there you go. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I want a CEO who, you know, preferably they're the founder, so they invested their own money and you know they own a decent amount of stock. But you know, a CEO who is just kind of sitting on my side of the table and wants the stock price to do well over the next ten years, whereas a lot of you know hired CEOs who own a very small amount of stock or they were you know the stock they do own is just through stock options that were just gifted to them you know they're not going to be nearly as incentivized by that long-term stock appreciation right so what is what then is your ideal CEO pay and stock ownership the biggest thing is that their stock is worth you know many multiples of their kind of cash income, so whatever their salary plus cash bonuses every year. Um, in terms of the micro cap space, I, I think every micro cap I own, the CEO owns or makes between like 150 and 300,000 a year, which I think is perfectly reasonable for small companies. If a micro cap CEO is making like half a million or more, I start to get concerned. And then uh, in, in terms of ownership, again, you know, the ownership's more based on what they're kind of salary is and stuff, but somewhere in the range of like 10 to 30%, I think is a nice number where they're, you know, certainly motivated by the stock price, but they also don't own a controlling stake. So, you know, someone who owns 20% knows that they're in charge, they're very incentivized by the stock price, but they also know that, hey, if I piss off shareholders, it's possible for them to run a proxy and kick me out because I don't own 60% of the stock. That's interesting. So you'd, you'd prefer them not to own 51%. You know, you don't want them to have too much where they can kind of, there isn't much incentive, you would say, because, uh, I mean, while they, they own a ton of shares, there isn't as much incentive because it's not like they're, you know, looking over their shoulder just in case they, you know, there's a lackluster, you know, revenues for that quarter or something. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, once someone owns 60 or 70%, they can, you know, of course they still care about the stock price, sure. but they can also they can also just, you know, pay themselves a huge salary and just kind of use the company as a piggy bank. And um, I, I do own two companies that are controlled companies. I, in general, that is something I avoid. But, you know, there are some exceptions where a founder started a company, he can, as they went public, they can, he continue to own over 50%. But, you know, if someone's proven themselves over many years to you know care about shareholders and stuff like that it's it's something I'm I'm able to excuse I guess um, it, on my website I I'm pretty sure I linked to it on my website but there's a research paper that looked at uh, CEO stock ownership and the stock performance of those companies and it's interesting it follows a bell-shaped curve and I was actually surprised that the bell shape peaks just over 50%. Like it, it peaks around like it peaks around like 55%. So stocks where the CEO owns, you know, no stock, those are the worst performing stocks. And the best performing stocks are where the CEO owns like, you know, just over, just over 50% right around there. And then it kind of quickly drops off after that, you know. Kind of kind of what we were talking about. If someone owns 90% of a company, they can just do whatever they want. That's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'm going to get a link for that because I'll make sure that we link to it in the in, below this uh, the the audio. Um, okay. So, then my my next question then is, you know, when when you see a company that you think is a good business, 
but the CEO has this uh, either a small ownership stake or just way too much, you know, I have three follow-up questions. You know, does that, I, I can kind of guess your first answer, but does that dissuade you from potentially taking a position? And have you ever addressed this to management? And thirdly, if you did address it to management, you know, how did you go about doing it? And, uh, and what was their reaction? <laughs> uh, generally, that, that is a deal breaker for me. The, you know, if a CEO owns a very small amount of stock, um, so I, I, I don't remember any instances where I did enough research on a company where the CEO didn't own any stock to really get to the point of addressing it to management. Um, I mean, you know, like I said earlier, one of the first things I do if I like the basic industry and company is I'll go to the proxy statement and look at the ownership and the salary and stuff. So if it's a hired CEO who owns you know, very small stock that was just gifted to them. It's almost always just just an immediate pass. And then, well, well, let's say how about um, how about a let's say it's a company where the CEO owns you know in your sweet spot that ten to thirty percent. But let's say he's making half a million, or he or she is making half a million, and you know you you have concerns about that that how much they're 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 making on a paycheck state standpoint, you know, what, have you ever had to address management in those cases, you know, and if so, like what, what would you do? And even if you haven't, like, how, how would you go about doing it? I have never addressed management about something like that. Um, honestly, like by the time I get to talking to a CEO, like usually by the time I talk to a CEO, it's, you know, I've spent weeks or months on the company. I've followed, or I've followed them for a long time. I already know a ton about them. So I obviously like the company a lot. I'm fine with everything. Um, so I'm generally not, you know, I have no desire to be like an activist or investor or anything. That's just not my personality at all. So, you know, almost all of my, or all of my interactions with management is, you know, generally very positive. I'm not, you know, I, I might make you know, small suggestions or something, or, you know, kind of suggestions through questions. But, um, yeah, I, I can't really think of instances where I've really addressed, like, you know, something big that I just disapproved of or something like that. Again, if, if there's something like I dislike that much about the company, I'm just going to pass on it and not really get to that point. Got it. Well, you know what? Everybody has their, their levels, you know, or or, or not just levels, but their, their, their metrics that they look for, you know, and for you, that is, you know, if, if they're not meeting your criteria when it comes to CEO pay and stock ownership, you know, it's just a, you're, you're disciplined. It's a simple pass. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we learn from our mistakes. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so other than, than CEO pay and, and their, their stock package. You know, what, what are some of other management intangibles that you look for? One of the main things I look for, and it's so simple, is just management that is like straightforward and seems honest. Um, CEO that talks about struggles, talks about mistakes. It, it annoys me so much when a company has like a, you know, a, a below expectation quarter and they just start blaming it on the weather and blaming it on, oh, there was, you know, the presidential election was this quarter and people were staying indoors more and, 
I mean, some, which a lot of companies use that excuse, you know, a couple quarters ago. Um, I appreciate it so much when a CEO just says, you know, hey, I I made a mistake or we didn't perform as well as we should have this quarter. You know, I did this dumb thing and I learned this from it and I won't do it again. And, you know, it, it really comes down to a CEO that just like comes off as a normal human being. They're there have been so many CEOs that um, either like on, a, on conference calls, certainly, or, you know, a couple that I've talked to where like I feel like I'm talking to a computer that just generates perfect shareholder friendly responses to everything. And it's just like <laughs> it's so frustrating. And that's that's one thing when I talk to CEOs, I purposely ask them, um, you know, about like mistakes or talk about like times where they weren't good. And, you know, I, I really look for CEOs that. Um, just kind of seem intellectually honest, I guess. And then on top, you know, another big thing is CEOs that are more long-term oriented. Um, and again, this I find this correlates very high with founder-led companies, whereas a lot of founders are very focused on their company 10, 20 years from now. And you know, reading conference calls, you know, you'll see some CEOs will, will talk about, you know, we're doing this to build our competitive position a decade from now. Whereas a lot of CEOs are you know, really only focused on giving quarterly guide or quarterly guidance, or they're you know, only talking about the very short term, and you know that's certainly um, that's that's always a turnoff for me. Mm-hmm. I really like CEOs who kind of buck some of the Wall Street trends, or like don't give quarterly guidance at all, don't give annual. I love CEOs who don't give any annual guidance. But you know, ones that give only annual, or only annual guidance, or um, even some, you know, don't do conference calls. And sometimes that's for bad reasons. But sometimes you talk to them, and they're like, you know, I just want to focus on growing my company's value, and I don't want to waste time, uh, you know, doing conference calls and kind of tending to Wall Street's expectations and all these things. And you know, as long as if if a you know, some CEOs who don't do conference calls, as long as they're you know still open to talking to shareholders and seem friendly, you know, I'm fine with that. Whereas some CEOs don't do conference calls because you know, they just they view shareholders as their enemy. But <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that you know you 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 look for that because it seems like in in some for some microcap companies, you know, they won't put out that guidance, and it's almost kind of like a oh, like they. Does this mean that you know they're gonna, <laughs> they're just gonna like just you know destroy all of our expectations because you know they're mostly held by uh, retail investors that have done their modeling and they they can kind of forecast where they think the company is going and then you know they're just then they they put out their their numbers and the next thing you know you're like oh man this is <laughs> this is even better and I can I can understand why you would like that because you'd see that and then yeah. you know next thing you know everybody who's been following the company is now coming in late and. You know, you already owned a little position, and the next thing you know, it's going up and up, and you're like, "Oh, this is fantastic, great!" Uh, absolutely. I uh, I read a book recently, which I can't remember the name of the book, but it it compared Wall Street guidance to getting on a treadmill, and it said once a CEO gets on the guidance treadmill, it's impossible to get off. You have to like if the company's has eight great quarters, you have to keep beating that. You have to keep beating it. And there's no, it's, it's impossible to like manage those expectations down. Like once Wall Street has big expectations for you, there's just, 
you can't come on and say, you know, oh, well, growth is going to start slowing. And I mean, you can, but there, there's just no like smooth way to do it. And at the, the point of that section of the book was just like, once you get on that guidance treadmill, it's impossible to get off. So it's better to just never get started. <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, I was going to say, it's like Twitter. <laughs> when you get started and you're just like, damn it, I cannot stop using it. So, um, man, that's funny. It, you know, actually what you just said kind of leads into my next question regarding, um, your, uh, uh, one of your blog posts, uh, called, uh, why I avoid acquisitive companies, you know, cause you would think once, once that growth starts to slow down, they might be looking for acquisitions to try and grow the business, you know? So, can you explain then why you do why you would avoid these types of companies? The number one thing is that they're harder to analyze. Mm. A, a lot of acquisitive companies, you know, especially if it's like a roll up where they're buying a ton of companies, it's impossible to get and get an idea of what the organic growth rate is. So you basically have to trust management. You know, whatever they if they mention organic growth rates, you have to trust them. There's just no way to confirm it and. You know, I, as I've talked about, I vastly prefer to invest in managers who I do trust, but I also want to be able to confirm what they're saying, you know. It, yeah. like, um, like, how do you confirm organic growth rates when they're, <laughs> they're about to acquire a business? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, those financials can just get so messy. It's, it's much easier for um, managers to kind of hide things in those financials because they do get messy. Um, and then on top of that, the, you know, the research has shown that acquisitions don't generate shareholder value for the acquirer. So research has shown that acquisitions and, merger, or, and mergers um, create value, but all of that value goes to the acquired company. Mm. Um, and that's because the typical premium for an acquisition is around 30%, and that's just an average, of course. But so when you think about that, if I buy a company, I have to increase the value of the new combined entity by 30% just to break even on that acquisition. That's 30% significant. <laughs> and then on top of that, the combined entity has to, you know, create 10 or 15% more value per year, whatever it is, to make that attractive IRR to make it even worth it in the first place. So, you know, just from the very beginning, you know, just looking at it from a high level, the numbers are against you when you're acquiring a company. Now, of course, there are you know, a ton of exceptions and, um, you know, generally like small bolt-ons do perform much better than like large acquisitions and, you know, where you have to take on debt and stuff. But just in general, you know, I, I, do, or I do own one company that I would consider acquisitive. Um, but most of their acquisitions have been smaller. They've never had to take on debt or anything like that. So it is something that like, if I'm reading an investment write up and in the first paragraph, the author says like, this company is rolling up this industry. I usually just stop reading right away. <laughs> like I, I very much avoid roll ups. Or the, I mean, do you look at also, I mean, does this also include those companies that are like, uh, you know, we're we have the public entity and then, you know, we're now buying up these smaller uh, private companies to fold into and help them develop to a certain point. I mean, do you, does that, does it include that as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally avoid acquisitive companies. All of, like I said, there's one company I own that's 
purchased maybe six or seven companies over the past know, decade or something like that, which still isn't super acquisitive. But besides that, the other companies I own I mean, have made very, very few acquisitions. Mm-hmm. So, do, do would you do you prefer having a, a concentrated or a more diversified portfolio, and and why? Well, as I said, I only own nine stocks right now, so I definitely prefer concentration. But it's, I don't know if that was ever a conscious decision. Like, you know, I don't know, five years ago, I was like, I really like owning 10 stocks. This is what I'm going to do. I really think it's more just a function of time. You know, I'm only one person. I don't, I don't have any analyst or anything like that. So I only have a very limited amount of time to research stocks. So I mentioned uh, a True Panion earlier, which I've been spending a lot of time on, and again, I, I don't own them, but um, I discovered that company maybe five weeks ago, and I've spent a very significant amount of time on them for the past five weeks, and next week I'm flying up to Seattle to go to their annual meeting. There's a whole lot of things I like about the company, but my point is that by the time my research is over, I'm going to spend you know, six or eight weeks on them, and of course, I've looked at other companies, I've done other stuff in that time period, but a significant portion of my time the past five weeks has been researching True Panion. So in a year's time, you know, how many companies can I really look at in depth, 10 or 20 or 30 or something like that? I mean, there's just no way I could own 50 stocks or 100 stocks because, you know, on top of the research I'm doing, I'm also doing you know, kind of maintenance research on the companies I own and keeping up with their releases and, you know, if anything changes in those industries or anything like that. So it's just, you know, it's just not not realistic for me and my investment style to own, you know, really more than, I've actually, um, you know, I think a year or two ago, I owned like 12 or 13 stocks and I've kind of tried to trim that down. I, I really think like seven or eight is my, kind of preferred number. And, and again, you know, kind of similar to my answer to my last question, um, you know, people, I'm going to cite some research that I also have linked on my website as well, by the way. Um, but the, the people like a diversified portfolio because they like the lower volatility. Mm-hmm. That's the main reason to have, own more stocks. This is less volatile. Um, but the like standard deviation of stock side stock portfolios is subject to diminishing returns on like a massive scale. Um, so if you look at this, uh, this paper that I've linked on my website, it says, uh, it shows that two stock port, the average two stock portfolio has a standard deviation of around 50%. The average 10 stock portfolio has a standard deviation of 19%. And then the average 1,000 stock portfolio has a standard deviation of, wait, sorry, I have those wrong. 10 stock portfolio has a standard deviation of 24%. Mm. So it's basically cut that standard deviation in half from owning two stocks to owning 10 stocks. And then going to a 1,000 stock portfolio only brings the standard deviation down to 19%. Mm. So going from 10 stocks to 1,000 stocks only decreases your standard deviation on average by like 5% per year. Mm-hmm. And you know, owning more stocks massively increases the amount of work you have to do for you know, a very small benefit. Right. And, yeah. and decreased volatility. 
Right. I was going to say, I mean, with the amount of work that you put in for, you know, for each of your portfolio companies and to find a new portfolio company potentially, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of, you know, it sounds like you put a lot of time and effort into it. You know? and, <laughs> yeah. And, and, it's, and even then, that's still no guarantee that you're actually going to, you know, deploy a position. Yeah. After, yeah. There are times I spend a month or two on a stock and, you know, I just add it to my watch list. And <laughs> maybe I'll buy it in a year or two. Right. So actually I'm, I'm taking a, a quick, I'm taking a quick 180, you know, and, and going back to your, to your background, you know, and I, cause I just, I, I want to know, you know, like how, how did your, your poker playing skills lend itself to investing, especially micro cap investing, you know, what, what was, what's the, the common denominator there? Well, I, I and don't just say gambling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, poker is not gambling, even though the U.S. government yeah. thinks it is. <laughs> I have to put that out there. But um, yo, know, it it has a lot of similarities in that. Um, first of all, I think I think the biggest benefit I got from poker is having a long term orientation. So in poker, you know, I can get it all in this hand with pocket aces and have an 80% chance to win the hand and lose. But I have to tell myself, hey, if I did that, you know, 10,000, if I play this hand the exact same way 10,000 times, I'm gonna make a ton of money. So in poker, and, and you know, you, you kind of train yourself to just not care about the short-term results or, you know, not care about the hand. It, it, as long as you're making good decisions, you're gonna make a lot of money in the long term. And it's similar to stocks. You know, there are a lot of things that can go wrong in the short term, but if you're focusing on the long term and finding companies that are going to do well in the long term, you know, the end result's going to be good. Even you know, there's always going to be bad quarters and always going to be you know general stock market movement. Um, so that would, I mean, that's the biggest benefit and. You know, there are, you know, you, you joke not to say gambling, but certainly um, just, I mean, poker, I mean, investing similar to poker and just like a much, much longer time scale. Like poker, you're, you know, putting money in and, you know, getting results like every minute, every time you play a hand. And then investing is kind of similar. You, you know, you, invest, you do a lot of research and then you make a bet and, you know, it pays off in six months or a year or five years or <laughs> something, but it's kind of similar, uh, similar concept. And, you know, I, I think I bet all investors or most investors, you know, have to have some, um, you know, someone who is super conservative with their money and just puts all their, keeps all their, I have a friend who's very successful, quite wealthy. He has almost a hundred percent of his net worth in his bank, in his bank account earning, you know, basically nothing right now, just because he's so conservative. Like he's not, he doesn't even want to put it in an index fund. He doesn't want to do anything. So, I mean, if you're investing in individual stocks or you're investing in, you know, even index funds, you have to have some element of, you know, you're, you're, you're clearly willing to risk your capital to make, you know, essentially make a bet on something that you believe in. Now you, you may not be a gambler, quote unquote, but you know, I think some element of Invest, some element of investing is, you know, you're you're willing to gamble your money. Mm -hmm. So, okay, getting getting back to you know your you know current uh, 
more recent events. You know, you you, pub- <laughs> you you did publish on your website your your twenty your twenty sixteen shareholder letter, and you you discuss at length how you had a clear case of cognitive dissonance. And and what I want to know because I've heard this phrase you know come up sometimes you know at cocktail parties and whatnot you know and and what what I want to know and is you know what what do you think to you what does this phrase mean and and why do you think we are all susceptible to this as investors the so cognitive dissonance dissonance to me is basically when a person holds two beliefs that contradict each other and even though they believe both things or they have um, or it's like a belief and an action or something that contradicts the, their belief um, but kind of how this is ba- this is kind of based on what I think Charlie Munger calls the inconsistency bias or something whereas humans hate being inconsistent like I want to appear to others to be very consistent in my beliefs and my thoughts and my actions so when we have these beliefs that contradict each other we somehow reconcile those in our mind and it's usually by you know lying to ourselves or you know kind of telling ourselves half truths or whatever um, just to kind of justify this thought or action that we that contradicts you know what we believe and I uh, I was listening to a podcast a couple months ago I'll, I'll kind of throw myself under the bus for uh, to give an example which I, I think cognitive dis- dissonance is easier to understand when you example that um, but anyways I was listening to this podcast and this um, guy in the podcast talk, started talking about this case of cognitive dissonance and I was like holy shit like I am so guilty of that <laughs> <laughs> and it's something I'd never really thought of but he was talking about um, animal cruelty and people who eat meat so I will say that I love animals I'm against animal cruelty as the vast majority of people do but then I also eat meat and support meat packers and an industry that has been proven to treat animals horribly. So what do I do to justify that? You know, I mean, I I think the main thing people do is I just don't think about it. (laughs) I I don't watch those documentaries that show how horribly animals are treated in meat packers, you know, kind of whole out of sight, out of mind. Then, you know, I might tell myself, you know, it's, it's natural to eat meat. We've humans have eaten meat forever. And that's how the food chain works. You know, other animals eat other animals. So, you know, humans eat animals as well. And, you know, those cows are bred specifically for this purpose. And so there are a lot of little justifications we can tell ourselves to kind of reconcile the fact that, you know, when it comes down to it, in a very small way, I am supporting that industry that has been proven to treat animals very poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to, to relate that to investing, I, I think cognitive dissonance is just one of those things that it's, it's just a human trait. It, I mean, I, I don't know if it specifically has anything to do with investing other than that I think all humans are guilty of it in a lot of ways. I mean, have a discussion with someone about politics and you'll see <laughs> cognitive, cognitive dissonance through the roof <laughs> in terms of, you know, someone believes something, but their candidate believes something else and they try and justify that. And, uh, I guess, I, and yeah. 
Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but, no, I, would, I, but I would think like a good example would be, you know, let's say like you happen to invest in a company where, okay, let's say they're making money, like they fit all your fundamentals, but it's a company mm -hmm. that's, you know, you fundamentally are like, let's say you're, you're not a soda drinker, you know, your whole life. But next thing you know, you're looking at a soda company and it's like, oh, look, it's checking all my boxes. <laughs> I'm going to take a position, you know, like. It, yeah, it, and that that's a perfect example that, you know, you could very well say like, you know, I don't drink soda because sugar's bad for you. And I think, um, you know, I think the government will eventually take action against sugar because it's bad for you and the government wants to protect people against sugar. And, you know, eventually more people are going to, you know, just become water drinkers and things like that. But then you discover this company and you might, you know, you, you know, you like the financials or whatever, and it's kind of easy to throw some of those, uh, or, you know, just kind of push some of those beliefs under the rug, if you will. <laughs> it's, it, it's hard. I mean, part of you, you know, like, especially if you're an outspoken, like, I'm never going to feed, you know, my kids will never drink soda, or, you know, they're not going to drink fizzy drinks and yet here you go you're building your wealth with uh you know owning stock in a, in a sugary drink business <laughs> you know like i mean it's 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 a tough one because on one hand you're thinking to yourself well you know i'm building my wealth i'm, I'm invested in a good company that's growing at a steady pace blah 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 hitting all everything i'm looking for but at the same time you know it's it you almost have to like really weigh what's more important to you and i think that's more i mean uh, and I, and I use this phrase not saying it's a bad thing necessarily, but, you know, it's more of the irrational mind in a sense. You know, you're not thinking about it rationally in the sense that, you know, if you were looking at it objectively, you see, okay, one hand building wealth, other hand not building wealth. You know, I'm, <laughs> it's more like a, on one hand, uh, I don't like sugar. I be, don't believe in sugar, and yet, you know, I, I'm in this sugar company, you know. Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing some some yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's something I've started to uh, think about maybe more in the past year or something that, you know, I certainly prefer to invest in companies that I think are doing good and are making the world a better place because one, you know, that kind of makes me feel good or whatever. But two, like those companies, all things being equal, I think those companies are going to do better than you know, a lot of companies that are damaging the world or, you know, damaging the environment or, you know, it could be a thousand different things, but whatever it is. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, it's the world is constantly changing and we want to look for companies that are, you know, we think are uh, making the world a better place. And look, as investors, that's our way we can help, you know, make the world a better place is by investing in these companies and supporting their efforts. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what, this is this is a fun question that I love asking. You know, and and can can you recall an experience that that helped guide your current microcap investing philosophy? You know, was it a you know a conference call or what? What was what? Can you name an experience where you're just like, wow, uh, CEO pay? Screw, damn it! You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I. I, I referenced Ben Graham earlier. That was definitely one of the earlier, you know, educations I got in investing. And obviously Warren Buffett, I've read, you know, as we all have read a ton of stuff about Warren Buffett. And it was kind of, it's interesting because the, the value 
you know, theory, if you will, stuck to me right away. Um, but I certainly invested in, you know, plenty of crappy companies that, um, looking back and like, you know, why would you ever invest that? Why would you ever invest in those? Those are clearly terrible companies. Um, but one of the, another like aha moment I had, and I don't even know why it was, I should have saved this, but I was reading one of Alan Meacham or Mecham, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Um, very successful hedge fund manager. I was reading his shareholder letters years ago and for some reason he just put the whole value idea just like very simply in a way that kind of um, stuck with me and it like just if you invest in like high quality companies with trustworthy managers you're gonna do all right over the long term and I you know it was more it was more to it than that but for whatever reason however he put it kind of stuck with me more than how you know Warren Buffett has said it you know so many times and um, I, I wish I could reference I, I don't even know what shareholder letter it was of his but um, I've read them all um, yeah that was that kind of and that, that's not micro cap specifically but just investing in general and just of like high quality companies that are gonna be around in 10 or 20 years led by trustworthy management it's it's very simple and Warren Buffett's been preaching it for 50 years, but um, you know, when you actually go look at, you know, you look at some company that's selling for 8X and half a book value and you're like, oh, but this is so tempting, even though yeah, the CEO's done a shady thing or two and ah, the industry's declining a little bit, but <laughs> it's so easy to get tempted by those mm -hmm. as that's where most of my investing mistakes are, whereas <laughs> in like caring about the valuation more than the quality of the company. So then what, what is your advice for new microcap investors? You know, if you were, if you're a fresh young and or olden, who, who, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just getting into the space, you know, what, what, what type of um, advice would you give them? It is so easy to get blown up in the microcap space, <laughs> <laughs> investing in companies that appear, you know, cheap or, you know, high quality or something. You know, every, maybe not every, almost every small cap, micro cap CEO is a good salesman. And they're personable, they're enthusiastic, they think the company is gonna be a billion dollar company someday. And a lot of them are very convincing. Um, but I feel like, I mean, certainly myself and you know maybe other investors as well, like if I just required myself when I was starting out to only invest in profitable companies that didn't have any debt or had like very small amount of debt, I probably would have saved myself a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Like just looking like just those, if a company's profitable and it doesn't, you know, there's very little chance it goes out of business or anything, you know, their, maybe their advantage will get eroded away or something, but you're probably not going to just get totally blown out of the water. <laughs> and, it, and it's not the worst thing in the world to, to have a loss, you know? Oh, no. No, that that would that would be my second piece of advice is to <laughs> you know just invest your own money and you know accept that it can be so you know as I, I still make mistakes every year every investor does but just recognize that every other investor makes those mistakes as well and uh, you know don't beat yourself up over it too much and you're, you're probably not going to get that education unless you're investing your own hard and hard-earned money because 
know, it, it definitely feels a lot better or it feels a lot different when you lose your own money versus, you know, you read about someone else's loss or you're investing in a, you know, a fake account or something like that. Hey, for full disclosure, I was pointing at myself. Uh, when you said. <laughs> so, um, so, so Travis, where, where can my audience go and find uh, more information about you and We Adore Capital? I generally just, just point people to my blog. So I run an investing blog at egregiouslycheap.com um, and it's focused on small micro caps. So I'll post investment ideas there and also as you know, we've talked about on this podcast, a lot of just general investing topics and theories and stuff like that. So egregiouslycheap.com. And um, are you on social media? Do you have a, a Twitter? I do have a Twitter. I have never tweeted before. Um, this is going to be your first tweet <laughs> right now. Yeah, maybe. I uh, I use it. I follow a handful of investors, and then I follow um, some company, like companies I'm invested in. I'll follow their Twitter account, but uh, I've never had something to tweet about thus yet. Most of my investing thoughts, I you know, just form into a blog and write it on there. But <laughs> dude, you got to share it on there, man. Come on, dude. <laughs> This yeah, I'm is, a very bad tw tweeter. Twitter. This, I don't know. Hey, man, this is social media one on one, dude. Come on, man. <laughs> you know, it's 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 really funny. Uh, my girlfriend actually works for Facebook, so oh you know, she, so she she loves she loves social media. Most of her friends obviously love social media, and I'm I'm like not on social media at all. Not really a user. So she always harasses me about it. That's so freaking funny. I think she has cognitive dissonance dating you right now. <laughs> Probably. Although she would not want me on Twitter, that's for sure. No, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. And guess what? We went through this whole interview without making one Weador uh, pun. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pat myself on the back right now. And uh, Congratulations. <laughs> and Travis, thank, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was fun. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap Podcast, and thank you, Travis, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.